Welcome everybody online. My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I don't know if you ever come across these like uh, human interest stories on, you know, People Magazine or Good Morning America. But a few years ago, there's a story about Molly and Emily. And uh, they are these, uh, they're twins, identical twins. And they were born in, uh, in South Korea and they were um, separated at birth. Right? So they were separated at birth. They were adopted by two different families, and, uh, and they lived their entire adult lives not knowing that there was a biological twin somewhere out there. And, you know, one of the, their daughters did, like, Ancestry, Ancestry.com or one of those things and finds out that there's a 50% relative out there uh, with their DNA. And, they, you know, they tracked him down, and they met each other at 36. Excuse me, at 36, they met each other. Can you imagine that for your whole life there's this person on the planet who shares all of your DNA, and they finally found each other. And what's so fun about these stories is because we're all a little mesmerized, like, because there's this question that we just need to know in our guts, like, are we our DNA, or are we the product of our surroundings, right? And when you have these twins that are separated at birth, it's like, well, which one is it? And it's fascinating, like, their homecoming picture, like, they have, like, the same style, uh, they have the same style in high school. They drive the same car. They both chew their nails. Um, they have all these little, like, idiosyncrasies that are, like, that are pretty similar. And, um, and so then, you, I mean, I end up in this deep, dark rabbit hole, like, l- reading all these stories about different twins who are separated from birth, because that is the question. How much of who we are is based on our DNA? How much of who we are is based on our surroundings? And the inverse is actually true, too. How broken are we because of our self and our flesh? And how broken are we because of the world around us? And what's interesting is scientists, we, and I think who we are, we all naturally pick a lane. And you kind of understand your lane, and then you don't really consider the other. And so when we talk about this idea of sin and brokenness, in our kind of spiritual community, in our lane, we're pretty comfortable around the well, we're not comfortable around it, but at least conceptually, we understand that we are sinful, broken people, we're, rebel, we're rebels, and that when we cause death and destruction, we're like, we cause death and destruction. And because we're good, well, you're not, but you know, some of us are judgy people, and you look around at other people who are causing death and destruction, and you can look at them and go, well, obviously, they are causing death and destruction. And so when we talk about sin, for most of how we talk around the church, we're comfortable with that lane. The, the in my guts, right? The flesh. We've talked about the devil. Now we're talking about the flesh. But there's this other lane that Christians have wrestled with forever and ever. And it's just not our natural lane. Um, but we've leaned into last week and this week, which is the world, which means what we're talking about is there's part of our brokenness, part of the brokenness around humanity. Yes, it's our own rebellion, but there's these systemic issues. It's the world. The world in which we live actually causes brokenness and death and destruction as well. And so this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at this lane, which isn't totally natural for us. Uh, and because it's not totally natural for us, it usually like pokes at us a different way, um, and it, which is great. And if something pokes at you, just email me at jeff at marincovenant.org, and uh, we'll get all your problems solved. But here we are. We're going to look at the world. This is the second half of this idea of the world. And this is how we're going to look at it. It's critiquing and fixing broken systems. Again, this is not like our natural language, but part of the call as followers of Christ is to recognize that there's the, the devil, the world, and the flesh, but as followers of Christ, we are not just these passive participants, but we are actually agents for God. We are co-laborers with, with God. We're people that God longs to equip and to power to actually be agents that expand the kingdom of heaven on earth, which means we have to put on this mantle to not just recognize what the world does for us, but ultimately be critiquing it and even moving uh, towards restoration. So there's this framing statement that we've been looking at for this whole, this whole system, I mean, this, this whole six weeks. And it says, this is the devil's strategy. 
The devil's strategy is that he gives us deceitful ideas, right? That he's a liar, right? That he just is communicating lies after lies after lies. And those deceitful ideas, they play to our disordered desires, right? We all have desires, right? We, we, we want to love, we want to care, for, we want food, we want money, we want power. But what ends up happening is those lies, they, they, they mess with our, with our rebellion inside of us and we disorder them. And all of a sudden, right, we'll like power becomes the thing, right? My material needs become the thing. And then everything systems from that, you know, there's ripples to that, which then are normalized in a sinful society. Last week, Jeff defined the world this way. The system of ideas, values, and practices and norms that are integrated and institutionalized. The system of ideas, values, practices, and norms. Right? So these are those, those uh, deceitful ideas, but they don't just become ideas. Right? They, they become integrated and institutionalized in a culture that is, an alien, that is an alienation from and in opposition to the rule and reign of God. Dude, this is heavy stuff. This is because we don't even see it because it's become normalized. If it wasn't normal, we'd be like, that's bad. We all look around the world. We all watch the news. We all see certain things like, that's bad. But there's institutions, there's systems in the world that we don't even think are bad. We don't even consider that way. And this morning, we're going to take a little look at those. We're like, ooh, maybe those do deserve a little bit of critique. Maybe those do deserve um, the attention of the church. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and we'll take a look at this verse together. Paul says this in Ephesians. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. I love the way that Paul just begins this. Like, hey, there was a way in which you used to live, but now you guys are Christ followers. You've been empowered and gifted with the Holy Spirit. So you are a new person. You're a new creation. So like, that's how you used to live. Now, part of us is like, what? There's a way we used to live? Yes, there's a way you used to live. So he's a reminder, like that's the assumption. There's a way in which you used to live in the futility of your thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of hearts. That's a lot. Think about it this way, right? Like there's a way when we, when, when we, we are in relationship with God, we want to love God. He's, in, he's softening our hearts. He's, he's softening our brains. But what happens is when we give ourselves over to sin and rebellion, it's just hardening our heart, right? It's, cal- it's causing us to be calloused. And, uh, and then we're missing being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I says, I love how he goes on. Having, last, having lost all sensitivity, Having lost all sensitivity, I don't know if you've ever experienced this in seasons of your life, probably not you guys, but when you're like, I just can't do this anymore. I'm just going to give in to my rebellion. I'm going to give in to my sin. And I'm just going to have a season where I'm going to let it rip about blah, blah, blah. And what's interesting is you actually kind of get numb, right? You've, you've, you've calloused your sensitivity to the movement of the Holy Spirit. And we talk about the systems of the world. If we're not careful, we've actually numbed out. We've, we've, we've calloused our brain to understand what systems of the world we're um, messing with. So, so we give themselves over to every sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Super good news. <laughs> so that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. Well, what is this world? Because we do not want to be insensitive. We want to actually have sensitive hearts. We want to have clear heads. We want to be people who God is going to use to not just be absorbing the culture, but to be people who critique it and maybe even bring hope. So here's the, the first point. It's an invitation to develop empathy for stories and critiques regarding systems that crush others. So when we talk about the world, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're going to do this morning. It's an invitation. 
right? Because this may be totally foreign to you. This may be your lane, but it's just a simple, let's just think of it this way. We're going to have a conversation about how to develop empathy for stories and critiques regarding these systems that actually crush others. Because here is the awful truth. We are fish and we live in the water and fish don't know they're wet, right? It's not until a fish goes out of the water, they're like, oh, I'm going to die, right? We live on land. You go in the water, you're like, oh, this is what being wet is. And we need to recognize that as Christians, as Christ followers, we live in the world. We live in the water, right? And because we live in the water, we have no idea what this water is, except that we live in it. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Is this the right water? Those are questions that we don't ask because we're just like, oh, we live in the water. How great it is. I'm going to go hike on Mount Perdell. I love everything, right? That's how we live because we're in the water. But what I love is God does not let his people just live in the water. So from the beginning of the story of God, he's always brought people from the outside to critique uh, the culture. So in the biblical story, these people were prophets, right? These were prophets. They were people that would stand back and they would look at this culture from, from a distance and say, oh my goodness, you guys are missing it, right? You read Isaiah and Jeremiah and you're like, what in the world? Wild God's people were engaged in all sorts of sin and death and destruction and were opposing the poor and were like manipulating scales and like we're doing all sorts of things, just crushing uh, their fellow Israelites. And the prophets would come and go, okay, you guys are messing it. You're missing it. And what's interesting, because you can, this is what I love about scripture, it was written so long ago, but if someone comes from the outside and says, you're missing it, your first reaction is like, uh, you don't know me, you don't know what's going on, and now you should die, right? You are probably a little less violent, but that's what they think. And what's interesting is all the prophets who would come in and say those things would be just crushed. Some of them would even be tortured and killed, right? Because nobody likes being told that they're missing it especially when you're like, I'm just in this warm water. This is great water. What are you even talking about? And to have someone say, oh my goodness, the water you're swimming in is no bueno. And it's actually contributing to the death and destruction around you. Jesus, the ultimate prophet, right? Jesus actually is separate from the water, right? He, he comes from heaven. He fully comes incarnate and he teaches us a whole brand new way to live. And the teachings of Jesus, when you read them, they're super inspiring, but we actually don't like them. We love thinking about all the weird things in scripture, but the teachings of Jesus are super simple and you just see them. They just, they're just an offense to everything about the water that we live in. And what I love about Jesus is he gives us very clear teachings about what that water should look like. But then he also, right, ultimately part of his mission was to die on the cross and be rose and rise again to conquer sin and death. So when we look at sin, when we look at the way that sin has impacted the world, when we look at the way that we have contributed to the sin of the world, this isn't about uh, shame. This isn't about punishment. This is about you screwing up or being awful people, right? We're, we know that. We're broken people. We're broken people who live in a broken world. And Jesus offers grace and mercy and illumination from the Holy Spirit and empowerment to actually be his agents in adjusting that. So here's a simple example. Before we jump into the ones that are going to poke you in the eyes, here's one that I just think helps clarify. When you think about what does it mean to live in a system? What does it mean to have, oh, um, right, to be critiqued, because you get critiqued from the outside by prophets, but then you're also critiqued by, sorry, by those on the outside of the system, right? So if you live right in the middle of the bell curve, you're like, my life is great. I'm crushing. But those on the outside of the bell curve are like, uh, look at me, right? And we see this all the time. People who are poor, people who are marginalized, you think, see this in the education system all the time. People who are falling through the cracks, falling behind because the school system, there's so many other systemic things that are happening, right? They're, they can't get in and engage. You're like, what's going on? But if you're like in the middle of the bell curve, you're like, 
my school is great. And so this is the challenge. If we need to have eyes to see both from the prophetic voices from God from the outside, but also from the marginalized and the oppressed and those on the outside of the bell curve and hear their voices. Because if we don't hear their voices, then we miss it as well. And God uses both of those voices to challenge the church to be his people more and more. So again, here's an exam- example that's, uh, that it just makes me look bad. It doesn't make you look bad. And we'll get to you guys in a little bit later, okay? So when I was a youth pastor, um, I loved taking kids on backpacking trips. Like, was, I just loved it. I love being outside. I love backpacking in general. And I love actually taking kids, students to go backpacking. It is so fun. And especially back, you know, you, they, they don't have phones. They don't have cell phones. They can't call their parents. And we just get to enjoy the beauty of creation. It's awesome. Well, I found this hack where I would get an REI credit card and I would use all of my church expenses on the REI credit card, which meant I got points, which meant once a year, I'd get like $1,500 at REI. So after like three years, like I'm crushing. I have every tent, every sleeping bag, all the gear. I am like an REI model. Like North Face is like, you are my man. I'm like, I am. I'm like, I am set. And I loved it. And now whenever I went out uh, backpacking with kids, I had all the stuff and it was great. So I put the call out. One summer, I invited a bunch of youth group kids to go. And sure enough, this sophomore boy, James Matos, joins us. Now, poor James, he loves video games and eating Cheetos, and he hasn't really been outside much. But I didn't care. I'm taking this kid out into the wilderness, right? Because this is my call, and it's going to be great. So I invite James, and we show up. And I show up as my REI model self with a couple other kids who are all ready to go. And then there's James, who's never been outside in a day in his life, right? And he borrowed an old backpack from his dad from like 1973 that weighed like 1,000 pounds. He had these combat boots from his uncle when he was in Vietnam. He brought bologna sandwiches, and he's like, I'm ready. And of course, because I'm in the middle of the bell curve and I'm, I've lost my sensitivity and empathy, this is before my wife really got a hold of me, right? That I'm like, look at James, what an idiot, you're going to learn, right? And so we go, ha ha, because that's how you help people learn. You shame them into being in the center of the bell curve. So we go off on this hike and he is dying. He has blisters, he's struggling. He like falls down and, and by the time we get to lunch, we're, we're like two, we're like probably maybe three miles into this backpacking trip and he's crying. And if you're a boy, you don't want to be crying in front of other guys, especially on a, on a backpacking trip. And, uh, and, and, and this was my word, this is my kind word of wisdom. I said, James, you're backpacking now. And that means your mom's not going to be driving up in a minivan and giving you a big gulp and taping you home. It's time for you to put one foot in front of the other. Huh? This is the youth pastor you guys hired. I know. So, so anyway, we have the trip. He makes it. He crushes. He did a great job. Well, on Monday morning, guess who gets a phone call from James Mattis' mom? Let's just say she wasn't happy, right? At first, I was like, what? I had no idea that I crushed this poor kid. I'm in the middle of the bell curve. I have all the privilege. I have all the resources. This is the trip that I led. And here's a kid who's on the outer rim and had none of the equipment, none of the experience, none of the background. And I just crushed him. Right? And so God didn't use a prophetic voice, but God used this voice from outside of my world to say, man, you missed it. You missed it. And thankfully, by the grace of God and my wife's strong hand, I could hear, oh my goodness, I've missed it. And we're able to, you know, we, we, we short things up and we're, we're dear friends to this day and those sort of things. But, right, but that's what we need. That's what we're talking about. That, that the system is that, that that backpacking experience is, works itself out in economics and education and every single part of our world, there are the people in the middle of the bell curve who think they're doing great, but we as Christians need to step back and we need to listen to the prophetic voices 
who are going to tell us how we're missing it, and to those who are the marginalized on the outside saying, hey, what we're doing is missing them. What I love about the kingdom of God, though, is that, that God doesn't just leave us and goes, hey, you guys are awful, good luck. No, but God actually has a process to mold us, to shape us, and to transform us. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, right? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. will. So we don't stay hard-hearted people, right? We put ourselves in a posture, in proximity to the Holy Spirit, to the word of God, to the people of God, to the prophetic voices of God, to the poor marginalized voices. We put ourselves in proximity to them, allowing for the Holy Spirit to actually transform us and to renew our mind. Because what happens when God actually does that, then God actually transforms our perspective. I don't know if you, when I was a kid, I hated bees. I hated them, right? Because when you play with bees, they like poke at you and they sting you and it hurts. Well, it turns out, right? Bees don't like their legs being pulled off or their wings being pulled off. Bees don't like, you know, when you swing baseball bats at them, right? So you're like, I hate bees. They're the worst. But as an adult, you're like, bees are awesome, right? Honey and tea, honey on toast, You need bees for those kinds of things, right? But you need God to change your perspectives because we are, live in the world that's informed by lies that we see things as dangerous, but they're dangerous because we've been crushing them. And so instead of having a posture towards someone that's like, you're dangerous, we're actually missing a perspective. And so we actually have to say, God, give me your lens. What are the lies that I'm believing? Give me your lens to see. And then when I have your lens to see, then I actually have hope. So a a bee, which is actually super dangerous to me as a kid, when I have a new lens, I think, oh, bees are something to be protected, to be admired, to be championed. And because we're tribal people, we all can immediately identify people or groups of people or group, yeah, groupings of people who are dangerous to us. And we put them at arm's length and we have no idea that actually maybe they're dangerous to us because there's something that's happening in their life. There's something that's going on in them. There's a way that the world is crushing them. And instead of just seeing them as dangerous, we actually need to engage them, have the lens of Christ and see them as people needing to be protected, right? So one thing is people who are dangerous or things that are dangerous, we actually need Christ to change us and give us hope. There's other things that we like, like, like little berries when you go out uh, in the wilderness that are beautiful and attractive, but that you eat them and they're actually gonna kill you. Right? We actually need the lens of Christ to see things that we think are actually beautiful, but that while they may be beautiful, they actually are going to end up crushing our souls. One of my favorite authors, and I think is one of the great uh, prophetic voices, Henry Nouwen. And I like him because he's brilliant, right? He's super smart. He's this Catholic priest, and he, uh, he taught at Notre Dame. He taught at Harvard and Yale's Divinity School. I mean, he crushed. Talk about, that's what you want. In the kingdom of God, you want a smart person in the smartest places using his smarts to leverage the kingdom of God. You're like, you are the man, right? But what's so interesting is he's like, actually, that's a poisonous berry. I'm actually addicted to the world's love and affection towards my intellectual skills, and I'm actually missing what God has for me. And so what he does is he quits, and he moves this little community outside of Ontario and spends a giant chunk of his career working with intellectually disabled people. He just went the full other end of the spectrum, and like most of us now, we go, I would do that. And I would take the Instagram shot and I would like, I would blog about it. I guess people don't blog anymore, but right. I would make sure that the world knew that I was doing this noble thing. But back when he did it, there was no social media. There was no hype. He did it because he served God, because he recognized that his kingdom was not of this earth, but it was, right, but it was the kingdom of heaven. And so he was willing to give up the trappings of the world 
to do that. So we have to be careful. We need God and the Holy Spirit to change our lens and not just see things as dangerous and not just things as beautiful, but we need to see them through Christ so that we see them correctly. All right, so the last thing that we're going to do is we're actually going to wade into some systems and critiques that might need some reform. And uh, this is the part where you're going to be like, oh, this is going to be a little pokey. And, uh, but instead of, a thing, instead of it, I'm not going to be the prophetic voice, right? So I'm not going to be like, Zorak, I'm going to pick on you again. This is what the Lord has to say to you. Like, if you, we have a coffee or a bourbon together, I will do that all day if you want. But these are simply things that the Lord is putting on my heart that I'm realizing these are prophetic voices in my life. These are people on the fringe uh, outside the bell curve in my life that I'm like, I should probably pay attention to. And if it resonates with you, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too. But the reason why this is important is because we are the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the testimony of God. And if we aren't working on not just our own personal sin, but our corporate sin, and not just our own personal redemption, but our corporate redemption, then we miss a huge opportunity. So I'm going to sound like a hypocrite here, but uh, one of my favorite shows is Yellowstone. I don't know if you watched that show. Not probably the most perfect show for this illustration, but um, there's a, there's a spinoff of Yellowstone called 1923. And I don't know if you watched this as Harrison Ford and oh, that woman, she's like this incredible actress. I forget. Yes. All right. You track with me, Vicky. Great. Well, it's, this incredible, it's an awesome show. I love everything about it. Um, but there's this one uh, storyline and like, it's like 10 minutes. And I'm not sure how it's going to all tie in together quite yet. But it, it, every episode, there's this 10 minute part where there's this, uh, there's this Catholic run orphanage where they've taken um, Native American orphaned women and young girls and they're, and they're civilizing them right? They're teaching them the scriptures and how to, how, to, how to farm and how to do laundry and how to be good, civilized, conquered people. And, uh, and, and we were watching this and my wife, who's so empathetic, right? For me, I'm like, this is a great show. She's like weeping as she's like, how are they justifying this? Because there's physical abuse and sexual abuse. And right, there's a priest, my guy, like my colleague who wearing the cross and the whole thing. And is just like, it is horrible. And using my words to justify abuse and the death and destruction to these poor girls. And it is just heartbreaking. And so Kate and I were having these, you know, these conversations and I'm, it's been thinking about it a lot. And the reason why it's so important for us to be willing to examine the water that we live in is because I think that those guys a hundred years ago did not think twice about it. They were being noble. They were living in the water in which they lived. And that's what you were supposed to do. You're supposed to conquer people and civilize people and abuse didn't matter and sexual abuse didn't matter. And you can use the name of the Lord and you can do all those things. And it was, and I don't think there was a pause at all. I don't think they were like the dirt balls trying to like do the special thing. They were the mainstream of the water of the time. And a hundred years later, we're like, whoa, you guys missed it. And because they missed it, Christians today are like, whoa, we don't want anything to do with you guys. You didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't have anything to do with it. But because of 100 years ago, that the testimony of God has been soiled, right? And so for us, we need to think about very carefully 100 years from now. Like right now, we're awesome. But 100 years from now, how are people going to look at us? And are they going to be like, whoa, you guys were like the abolitionists. You guys were like the activists who actually stood and cared for those on the marginalized and actually moved the kingdom of God forward are we going to be horrified and embarrassed because we were so comfortable in the water that we lived? And so for me, gosh, as, especially as a Christian leader, 
gives me so much pause. It terrifies me. And so these are, again, these are a few things that I came up with that I think um, are challenging to me and, uh, and maybe might be challenging to you. So first, uh, these are four categories. The first one that I think we need to be aware of the prophetic voices and those on the marginalized and outside voices are the idea of racism. And it's interesting, I grew up in Novato and back in the 80s, I learned all about Martin Luther King. I didn't know one black person, so I didn't know the first thing that there was racism out in the big bad world, right? Crushing, life was great. But the reality is, especially if you've been to college in the last like 10 years, the whole language has changed, the whole world has changed, the whole way we have information and access to each other has changed. And so while you're like, I'm not a racist person, things are great. We, there are enough prophetic voices, there are enough marginalized voices who are like, man, as a culture, we are missing it. And the way that we are systemically and institutionally marginalized people who look differently, who come from different cultures, different backgrounds, is a brutal part of the world in which we live in, which means is a brutal part for us as a church to actually step into, to be aware of, to learn all the new language, to learn all the new things that are happening so that we're not oblivious to the conversation and we're actually, actually part of the conversation bringing hope and change uh, to a world that needs it. So that's one. These are super fast. And I'm going to go through these really quickly. The nice thing is I won't get in too much trouble, just a mild amount of trouble. But again, any one of these, I'm happy to do a deeper dive with. Uh, I just didn't want to keep you till three o'clock today. So the second one is, is another good one that pokes you in the eyeballs, which is nationalism. Listen, I grew up in the 80s. I love Red Dawn. I hated the commies. I'm all about America. You know, like, it's great. Great country. It's super fun. We have a ton of blessings. But again, as Christians, we need, to, we need the hard stop that our kingdom is not defined by the borders of America. The benefits for us don't matter about just the benefits of our border, right? That we are people who are about the kingdom of God. Our borders are so much bigger than nationalism. And, you know, in liberal Marin, it's great to kind of poke fun at those Christian nationalists over in Alabama who just want to use political power to bring about the kingdom of God. But in the progressive church, which is the church that I, many of the people that I live in, they're using their political power just the same way to bring in the kingdom of God, just with a different set of values. And so we as a church need to be careful. We have political power as a tool, but it seems like every time religious people get enough political power, it never goes well. And so we need to understand and be very careful how in which we're going to mess with these systems and structures, because once we touch political power, it gets super gnarly and super dicey. And that's one of the areas that I'm wrestling with. Another one is money and materialism. Gosh, living Marin is so hard because everyone is so beautiful and has so many great things. I want so many beautiful things. I want so many great things. And uh, I was having dinner with some friends of mine and they were like, they just held my feet to the fire. They're like, oh, that new thing that you liked? Do you know that, that, that to have that new thing that um, diesel tankers basically had to go to China and back three times for you to have your, your new little gizmo? Like the amount of devastation to the environment because I want my new thing, right? The amount of devastation that happens to certain economic systems because I want my new thing. And it's easy to be judgy like, oh, capitalism is God's way. Socialism is God's way. Old school feudalism is God's way. Nope. Like those are just worldly systems and we can't get too comfortable in any of them. We want to be outside of those systems offering critique, hearing about the people and the marginalized and leveraging our power and our privilege to care for them. And again, I'm hypocrites on all these, but these are the things that are messing with me. And here's the last one. Um, This idea of comfort and happiness. We're addicted to it. We deserve it. And we know we do because the second something doesn't go our way, we throw in the towel. We're done with God. We're done with our faith. We like wail and moan. 
man, the world is all about suffering. How do you not turn on the news and be like, that is real suffering, right? The way that we want God to give us a giant warm blanket all the time, I think deters us from the true maturity that God longs for us to be and to become. And so we need to be people who don't just live in the water, but are willing to say, God, will you critique me? Will you give me the courage? Will you move me to be somebody who doesn't just absorbs the culture around me, but actually moves the kingdom of God forward? So last thing we're doing, we're just going to spend a few minutes. This is just a tiny exercise that will begin moving the ball forward. You get to have, do this more at home. And again, happy to have more conversation in person. But in front of you is a little piece of paper like this. And um, I'm just going to walk through these four, um, four places, uh, four topics, just to give you an opportunity to reflect. It's like, God, what is your part in that thing? Or what might God be inviting you to correct or to criticize or work towards but before we do that, let's, let's pray this prayer of confession together. Sometimes I think it's helpful to use other people's words to begin to shape our heart around these things. So let's, let's, let's pray this together. God of justice, you repeatedly call on us to action, but we so often fail to respond. Your word convicts us, demonstrating that inaction is just as sinful as wrong actions. Lord of mercy, forgive us for the times we've been silent in the face of injustice, when we've turned a blind eye towards suffering and brokenness. Renew our passion to care for and defend the unseen, oppressed, and marginalized. Now let's continue with some silent prayer and we'll just walk through this together. So forgive me for my complicity in action and agreements around false narratives regarding racism. So for me, it's looked like this, and we'll just spend a few moments for you to jot down whatever the Lord puts on your heart. Please give me your eyes to see and your power to act and your vision for a hopeful future. Now, Lord, forgive me for my complicity in action and agreements around false narratives regarding nationalism. For me, it may have looked like these things. Lord, please give me your eyes to see and your power to act and your vision for a hopeful future. Lord, forgive me for my complicity in action and agreements around false narratives regarding money and materialism. For me, it's looked like this.
Lord, give me your eyes to see and your power to act and your vision for a hopeful future. And Lord, forgive me for my complicity in action and agreements around false narratives regarding comfort and happiness. And for me, it's looked like this. Lord, give me your eyes to see, your power to act, and your vision for a hopeful future. And gracious God, we come before you, your church, your people. We recognize our own sin. We recognize our own desire for peace and for comfort, for the status quo. And we ask that you would mold us and shape us into your image, that you, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, would challenge us, would correct us, would empower us, I pray that we would be people who be shaped by you, that we would be known by your fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We'd be people who be known by faith and hope and love. We'd be people who would love mercy, who would do justice, people that would walk with you. And may these words of Jesus continue to shape our brain, our mind, our heart, and call us into care and empathy and action. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Make our home in your kingdom more and more for your glory. Amen and amen. Let's stand as we worship together.